study of 1 Timothy. We'll pick back up in chapter 4. Um, I wanted to return a little bit to uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. We had talked a little bit about it, but I didn't get a chance to finish up some of the thoughts we had there. So we'll return there, and Lord willing, we're going to get all the way through chapter 4. It rarely happens that I accomplish the goals I set for myself, but uh, we'll give it our best. Uh, So I'll begin just by reading this first few verses, and then we'll discuss them. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. All right, so um, he's, he moved from this, uh, this proclamation of the gospel to uh, again returning to warning Timothy about these false teachers. And what, was the, what did we talk about was the nature of their, uh, of their false teaching. What did it lead, what, what are the conclusions that it led them to? That, we, that he just articulates right there. Asceticism. What's the problem with asceticism? It's like we said here, you know, it says everything created by God is good, you know, and, you know, the food he, he provides and, you know, the spouse. Mm-hmm. They're good. Yep, yep. They're good and um, their proper use is good, right? And, uh, and oftentimes um, cults and you know, uh, heretical teachings will emphasize asceticism, discipline of the body, those kinds of things as really fundamental tenets of their faith, right? And that's what's happening here. Um, They're requiring abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth Um, and, uh, and denying the and forbidding marriage. And, um, Dale, do you have something? And uh, the problem with these kinds of things is that they're of no use of checking the flesh, right? That's what Paul says in Colossians 2. The problem is you can do these things till you're blue in the face, but they don't lead you. They don't lead you to actually kill the sin that's in your body, right? This is why, uh, you know, celibacy forced celibacy within like the papacy is was a big problem right that energy is going to get directed somewhere and it usually gets directed in sinful and very harmful ways either through concubines right there where they over they go around the prospect of marriage many priests in the medieval time all had wives and children and families but they weren't proper they weren't proper wives they were concubines you know because they had to go around their laws in order to do that not fulfill that natural function of the family and so uh you, you can see how um 
devoting themselves to these things, which Paul uses very strong language, right? These are deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's not like light. You know, Paul's not saying like, hey, this one's kind of problematic. We should watch out for that. It's like, these are deceitful teachings set on fire by hell. Watch out for this kind of stuff because it, it really is destructive to the church. And, um, but what's at the bottom of all these? What's at the bottom of these two uh, things that he highlights? And, we, and he, he says it explicitly in verse 4. God's the creator. He only created good things. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. Right. Bill. Right. Right. Yeah, and this is what this is the problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees, right? They they got part of the law right, but then they used the law as a bludgeon to hurt people, right? And 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 so he he allows his disciples to walk through the field and pluck grain on the Sabbath, and it just infuriates the Pharisees. How could you be doing this kind of work on the Sabbath? You know, and they're just plucking the grain and and eating it, and. Uh, and Jesus said, you guys have just totally missed the point. The Sabbath is for man. It's not, a, it's not about a list of what I don't get to do. It's what you get to do. You get to rest. And what does rest imply? Well, yes, you were working. <clears throat> Remember the story of the manna. When they get manna in the wilderness, what does Moses tell them about the Sabbath? They went out on, if they went out on the Sabbath, they found nothing out there. There was nothing there, right? And if they, but God had given them the day before enough for two days. And then this, this principle, they were supposed to be driving home to them. What is, the, what is it about that, that they're supposed to learn? God's the one that provides, right? He says, labor for six days and on the seventh you shall rest. Why? Because you're not God. God is. And on the seventh year, rest for a whole year. And God's going to sustain you. And then on the 50th years, you're going to rest for, uh, and all of your debts are going to be paid. And you're going to get back your ancestral land. God set it up pretty wisely. But the problem with humans is that we don't want to rest, right? We are, by nature, works righteousness creatures. We think, well, I, you know what? God said rest, I'm going to work harder. It's like obstinate. you know. And so we come up with religious practices that we think are going to make God happy. We think, God is definitely going to notice me now. I haven't eaten in three days. I'm not married. I'm not using God's good gifts. Now imagine if you were God... And your creature did that. And he just says, I'm not going to get married because it's evil. Is that honoring to God? 
No, it's not honoring to God. It devalues his whole creation. And by, by implication, it devalues who God is. Right? So we've got to be very careful because this crept into the church big time in the 20th century. How many, how many people have heard the expression, why, why polish brass on a sinking ship? Why should we care about God's creation when it's all going to burn up? Why should we care about our bodies? Why should we care about our big business practices? Why should anything in our faith have anything to do with our day-to-day life when it's just spiritual? We know it's just spiritual. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus is clear. How many of you were taught that kind of thing? I know I was, especially within dispensationalism, right? It was like, it's all burning up. It doesn't matter. We're going to get a new heavens, a new earth. There's no reason to care for God's creation. It's all evil. That's Gnosticism. But it was very prevalent in the 20th century. And uh, the Christian faith gets over-spiritualized. And your Monday through Saturday workaday life is off-limits to the Christian faith. It just doesn't matter. We have this even within Reformed theology. It's called two kingdoms. Reformed two-kingdom theology. And that's that the earthly kingdom God's not really concerned with. The Scriptures don't say anything about it. Just sort of fit yourself into it. But it's the heavenly kingdom that God rules and reigns over. And that's just not consistent with Scripture. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He said everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. But there are other ways that we can denigrate God's creation. Sometimes, like we were in, in a church that really emphasized this, this aspect, but it got also turned into a bludgeon. So that, especially with the women, if you didn't make your family organic, grass-fed, uh, you know, and all nourishing traditions you were not loving your family and so we we take the gifts that god gives us and we use them in the wrong ways to create divisions and separations um, artificially so that we can say these are the elect these are non the elect you guys don't eat organic grass-fed beef you're not the elect obviously you know but we do this we you we, uh, we fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. That's what these sects would do. But you guys don't fast at all. Elect, not elect. You're not in. And it, and it becomes a way to create distinctions within the people of God. And, it's, and Paul says, these are deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Because they introduce, one, they denigrate God's good creation, and two, they create artificial distinctions that God is everywhere in the New Testament flattening. There are no distinctions between Jews and Gentiles, right? They're one in Christ. And so we, want, we don't want to be putting distinctions in place where God has torn them down. So I, told my, I would tell my wife, you know what? Paul's very clear. If you don't have organic or grass-fed food, give thanks for it, right? Whatever it is soaked in ammonia and you know not grass-fed it's not the best maybe you could you'd want to have better but 
If that's all you can afford, give thanks to God for it. Because He is the one that made it. He gave it to us. And He is the one who sustains and blesses us. Right? He takes the dead things that we eat and gives us life. I don't know how that works. I mean, science tries to tell you it's like this and that. But it's, it's sort of miraculous, right? And a lot of us have a hard time because we can't eat everything. And we've got to rely on God in the midst of that. So we have to give thanks for the things that we, we can, and we ask God to sus- sustain us. And that's what Paul is teaching. Everything created by God is good, including gluten. Gluten is good. I know because it's in beer, so it's got to be good. But it's to be received with thanksgiving. Any questions? Yes, Steve. I think, um, I think what he means by that is that it's animated, it's driven by demonic principles, which what, what is the purpose of Satan but to undermine the faith, right? This is, this is it from the very beginning. What does he tell Eve? It's sort of a half-truth, right? If you eat this, you're going to be like God. That's not really a lie, but it is a lie. And so, uh, so that's, in that way, that's the teaching of demons, so I think that's, it's, there's a half-truth to it. And what's the half-truth from this? What's partially true about what they've latched on to? Is it wrong, is it sinful to fast? No. Can it be a good practice? Yeah. Is marriage always, does it always lead to blessing? Not always. Sometimes it's a scourge and a curse. <laughs> why are there? Why are we? Why are people laughing? <laughs> so, go ahead. Because it's about control, right? If you, if you can dial it down to a few practices that you do, then you have control over your Christian life. But in many ways, the Christian life is about clinging to somebody else, right? Jesus, right? You are holding on to him, and he's the one that perseveres. And it's his, his faith that is your righteousness, right? So uh, in a lot of ways, there's not a lot of control in that, right? Because we are, we are learning to trust in something that we don't do ourselves. 
and we didn't see done, which means we have to, it all rests on faith, something we haven't seen. We have to trust implicitly that God has what he's promised is true, and it's true in Christ. And there's not a lot of control there. So a lot of our methods are trying to get more control out of it. So I can say, yeah, I've dialed this down, so I've got it. And I know that it's sure. And I, you know, if I do these practices, I know God's going to be pleased with me, so I don't have to trust as much in something that Jesus has done for me because I can add some of my own stuff. You know, so, yeah. <laughs> like, and it might be something that is we're saying, like, well, this is freedom in Christ, but like, we know that if we keep eating McDonald's every day, you know, and our, we're, we're being told we might have a heart attack, but yet we're just like, well, God says freedom, give myself in faith. You know, we're just immature in a lot of things yeah, and yeah. just even adding things. You know, well, if I, you know, yeah. do this extra practice, then I'll do it. Right. We're right. We're just yep. Bill. The Talmud is the rabbi's interpretation of the Torah. Yeah. Yeah, that thousands. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a twenty-two volume set if you buy it. I know that I have. I haven't bought it, but it is. Is it getting added to, or is it? This is. The, it's called the Babylonian Talmud, which is pre-Christ. You know that period during. Yeah, so, you know, this is what we do. We add things to the, we add and we make good things that God has given us into things that end up doing damage to us. You know, um, the Christian life in many ways is a life of self-denial where we are learning to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And that involves dying to our own impulses and desires, which oftentimes looks like asceticism. But it has to be framed the right way, which is why it's always like uh, Bert, Luke Burt preached last week. The order matters. You have to get the gospel first. If you don't understand the indicatives, what God has done for you, then you will make the imperatives the indicatives. And you'll turn your relationship with God into something that you do instead of something God has done for you. And so, uh, but it, it, that doesn't negate that God's called us to be holy or deny ourselves or follow Jesus. He has. But those things don't establish the relationship. That's the difference between false teaching. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we like, we like rules and lists that we can follow. So Paul goes on in verse 6, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith 
and of the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now we are moving into a section in Timothy where Paul is beginning to focus in on his protege. And you'll notice this, the second plural, you, is used over and over again um, because he's beginning to make it personal. Now it's been like, okay, I want you to do this. Then he's talked a lot about what does it look like within the community of faith? How, what does an elder look like? What does a deacon look like? What should worship look like? How should we be conducting ourselves in the household of faith? But now he's drilling in to very personal matters. You, Timothy, need to be doing this. If you put these things before the brothers, and there's some question, what is he talking about these things? Is it what he just said in verse 1 through 6 of chapter 4? Or is it the entirety of the letter that's come before? I think it's probably the latter that he's emphasizing. Look, I've been teaching you all along. This is what it looks like to be an elder in the household of faith. This is what it looks like to apply these things. Now, if you put all that I've taught you before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So, one of one of the things that strikes me is that that's not something it's not something that Timothy's learning for the first time right Paul's reiterating things he's already been taught the word of faith and the good doctrine he's already followed those things he's needing a little bit of encouragement why do you think that is given the context of what he's young yes why else what what have we dealt with here Churches are pristine places with no conflict, right? Right. So he's been, and you know, when you're a young, young pastor, most think that he's probably not barely 30 at this point. He was probably a teenager when he was taken with Paul on his first missionary journey, or I'm sorry, his second missionary journey. But, um, but he's probably a decade has passed. He's probably either approaching 30 or in his early 30s. He's a, he's a young man, and he's got to go into a church. He's got to be a part of a church where there are teachers, probably older than him, who are teaching things that are destructive to the faith. And he needs some encouragement to do that, because that's not an easy task. He needs to be reminded, this is the job that you have. You already know what to do. You've already been taught these things. I just want you to emphasize these things because I know that this is the problem you're going to face. So Paul is personally encouraging him. And then he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. And I, I wish the, the ESV wouldn't have translated it this way because it's actually old wives' tales. And I like that better. Right? It gives this, it gives this sense of um, petty gossip and uh, busybody you know, and uh, uh, the kind of teaching that flows from house to house, and as it goes, it morphs and changes, and it's no longer the same. Um, and so uh, he, he's warning them, look, 
Don't have anything to do with this kind of stuff. You know the faith that's been handed down once for all to the saints. You know the good doctrine. Don't be persuaded by these silly myths, by, um, but instead train yourself for godliness. So um, then he, he uses, he moves to talk about the metaphor of somebody who's training in the gymnasium. You know, why do you go to the gym? Yeah, you go to keep your health up, right? You go to get strong. You want to be able to um, continue to care for the kids that God has given you. That's why I go. I want to be able to still beat them up when I'm 70. I don't want them. They're all going to be taller than me, so I've got to be able to lift more than they can. Otherwise, how am I going to hold my own, right? So, you know, but I don't go there for no reason, I go there because I'm training, because I want to get strength. And Paul says, that's the way that you should be looking at the Christian life. It's not as if there's no disciplines that we can do that wouldn't strength train us, right? We can. Paul's not, because he's, um, he's attacking these false teachers, he's not saying, let go and let God. You know, just whatever happens, you know, let's see what happens and, you know. Thank God if it's good, if it's not. Oh, well. No, he's, he's saying, don't put your faith in the practices, but do the practices, because they'll train you to be more godly. Right? Your faith is in Jesus Christ. Your relationship with God rests on Him, not on what the practices that you do. But just like you train yourself, you've got to train yourself for godliness. Bodily exercise is great, but... It doesn't hold for the life that is to come. Um, but godliness is a value in every way. And this is a word play. In the Greek, he's playing on the, he uses a very similar words, and he's playing on that. Bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Not only does it attend this life with blessing, but it furnishes you for the life to come. And part of that, dis, what, is the, what is part of the discipline of going to the gym? What are you doing in the gym? Sweating? Why? You're working? Yeah, and what, what's happening when you're lifting weights? What are you doing? Yeah, by what? By tearing it down. You are stressing your body so that it can grow. That's a similar principle with getting up and reading your Bible and praying. How many find prayer easy? Right? 15 minutes into it and it's squirrel, you know, and you're off. Getting up early. <laughs> So, you know, we have to be training ourselves for godliness. It takes discipline. Yeah.
Yep. Yep. Even if it isn't just going through the motions, there's something about yeah. just going through the motions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It is, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Say something I don't want. I shouldn't say anything. But that's how that's how much it ticked me. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to be very, very, very on time. I think that that is extremely damaging. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He made me. Yep. Um, and I think the same thing is, is with prayer. And yep. If you don't want to do it, you're not spiritual. Yeah, yeah. My favorite quote is, of the human person, the heart is hollow. Yeah, yeah. I never, my heart's desires are often Right, yeah. Yeah, we do this a lot with marriage too, right? Um, you know, if everything is not completely ideal, you should follow your heart and get a divorce, you know, because the next person is going to be exactly the same. <laughs> because you're married to them, you know, and uh, you're going to bring all the same problems and you're not going to accomplish anything that that Hollywood or the world around you tells you. It might, you know, it might be a fling for a moment, but then it'll be exactly the same. But it's the quiet perseverance. It's the, you know, obeying the Lord to love your wife and to respect your husband. And uh, and those things are challenging, right? They take work and effort and uh and they can be described as, you know, as this kind of training yourself for godliness. And then he comes in verse 9 saying, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And it sort of just hangs there. And a lot of the other statements that have been, for this is a trustworthy saying, then what precedes it is what the trustworthy saying is. But there's a lot of debate about what Paul is, what is the saying that is trustworthy? Um, is it following? But the four doesn't lead us to conclude that he is saying verse 10 is what's the trustworthy saying. So probably it's the whole section from at least chapter or verse 6, probably down to uh, 5 2. Those sayings that Paul has for Timothy that are personal are trustworthy and to be, um, you know, we said those are bankable. They're, you can take it to the bank. This is the truth. You know, that's what he's saying. He's like, this is what I'm saying to you is trustworthy. So probably let's include all of this admonition uh, of a good servant of Christ Jesus, which goes down um, to uh, to chapter 5 verse 2 
Yes. Yeah. Right. Yep. And he says it in chapter 3 too. Chapter 3 verse 1. The saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer he desires a noble task. But when you come down to this one it's sort of nestled right in the middle of a bunch of instructions. So it's not really clear is he, is he saying uh, in verse 10 for to this end we toil and strive because we, ha- we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So some have said what the trustworthy saying is, is that our hope is set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Well, that's interesting. What does that do to our, uh, to our uh, soteriology? How many know what soteriology is? Oh, we got two. Good. Three. Soteriology is the study of salvation, you know, just how, how does God save us? It's a fancy Latin word that pastors use to make themselves look cool and smart, um, which I am neither cool or smart. But, um, but he, uh, he says, God is the Savior of all people. But I, I thought that not all people are saved. So what's he doing? Why is he saying this? So he has a special saving power for those who believe, but not for everybody else. But he does save them. I mean, I think it's in the context he's just talking about Christians. I mean, all people is all Christians. Right. Right, exactly. That's how I take these texts and texts like John 3.16, you know, uh, is there any other Savior of the world? No, Jesus is the only Savior. There is no other Savior of the world. But that doesn't, but especially of those who believe, right? Um, So Jesus is, God is the Savior. The living God is the one we set our hope on because He is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. There is no saving apart from this living God. That's what Paul is saying. Jenny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I believe. Help my unbelief. You know, that's the cry we're constantly making. Yeah. And... Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. That we call common grace. That his sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous, and he causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. We all experience the blessings of living in God's creation, of having our heart beat and the air that we breathe 
constantly. Uh, none of those things are just natural. God is the one that accomplishes those things. So, um, you know, we we are, are are live and move and have our being because of Him. And uh, Paul is saying that these are. For to this end we toil and strive. What do you think that end is? God's glory. That's the that's the best answer, right? But um, he is he is striving after godliness, training himself after godliness for the purpose of. Um, um, uh, because he has his hope set on the living God. So what is the motivation for training yourself in godliness? It's, it's not so that you can be the Bible answer man and you know, have every question to life's problems answered. That's not the best motivation for doing training in godliness. In fact, you're not going to last at all. right? My, one of my professors used to tell the story, ask the question, you know, okay, you got three people. They all run, but for different reasons. Which one's going to run for his whole life? One person, he runs because his doctor said, if you don't do something, you're going to die. So he's like, well, I'm going to go run. The other guy, he runs because he thinks, well, I like what other runners, how they look. I'm gonna, I want to run so I can look like that. The last guy runs because he loves to run. Which one's going to run the longest? Yeah. Paul says you've got to have your motivations right. The reason we toil and strive and other manuscripts say suffer, the reason why we are toiling and striving and suffering is because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of the world. You can't have any other motivation for checking your sinful impulses, and training yourself in godliness if you don't have that as your hope. That's got to be the foundation, the end that you're striving for, right? And that's God Himself. The glory of God, you can put it like that, but it's God. It's got to be your motivation. Otherwise, nothing else will sustain you for the rest of your life. So then he encourages Timothy to command and teach these things. That's kind of a strong language. But it's the same word for urge. Urge people. Um, command, admonish, exhort. And then he gets very personal. He says, let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So, why do you think he highlights these things? These five things. Why does he highlight in context of don't let them despise you for your youth? What, are, what is youth known for? Wisdom, right? You know, faithfulness, purity, right? Yeah. So what, is, what does Timothy have to do? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Right. 
and it has to and your faith it your life has to demonstrate that you are above reproach in all of these different areas glenn <laughs> but I think it's one of the things that we can do to each other as a world is that we understand that God's leadership is a place to look for. Yep. Yeah. Because we'll recognize it. Right. And we'll recognize when that's not what we see. Yeah. And I think you said, you know, these people, they're they're telling you all this stuff. But how do you answer this? Yep. You set an example in the way you talk, the way you conduct your life. Yep. Yep. Theological. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, he's hearkening back to those qualifications from chapter 3, which are all character qualifications, you know. How should you, Timothy, be conducting yourself so as to be able to command and, and teach these things? Well, if your life, you know, he's gonna, he says down below in verse 16, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Right? How are churches made shipwreck? Usually by their leaders. Right? And then they got a whole bunch of sheep following right after them. But Paul says, you got to pay attention to yourself and the things that you're teaching. And if you don't have those things lined up, you're going to make shipwreck of the church. Yeah. Yep. If you sit there, yep. When that's said, we ought to just all get up and rock out. Exactly. Yep. Never come back. Yep. Yeah. Because that's the reality. Yep. It's true. And we put up with we put up with the little stuff. Right. The character, James starts getting up to. Yep. Oh, that sounds a little shady, but you know. Mm-hmm. And. Yep. And it it happens usually because. You have stopped training yourself for godliness, so you don't recognize good leaders. Right? You you can't point one out. You couldn't differentiate between the different ones because you don't know scripture. Right? So you're not exercising yourself in godliness so, so as to be able to say, This guy is teaching wacko stuff. We're out of here.
Yeah, and it and it comes in the uh, the phrase. Well, we need women to tell us about the Bible. Why? Why do you need? Why does it have to come from a woman for it to be edifying for a woman? That doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, um, and but we believe those kinds of things instead of just saying no. What What do you actually need? You need the fountain of all wisdom, the Bible itself. You know. And uh, and so we we end up replacing it with things that are they can be helpful, but they end up distracting from the main thing. The audio Bible takes seventy two hours to read the whole thing, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah, it would be a good math problem. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I do toil and strive because I have a hope that is not founded in my ability to be great or grand, but in God who is my Savior. So that motivates me uh, continually. But thank you. Glenn, would you close us in prayer?